All right. Welcome to episode 53 of Seize the Moment podcast. Today we have a very special guest. He's a former professional boxer, author of the novel Bethany Park, and his memoir, Punching from the Shadows. We welcome Glenn Sharp. Hi, Glenn. Hi. Hello. Hello, you guys. Glad to be here. Thanks. And thank you so much for coming yeah. on. And so the first thing that we're going to talk about is so in private, kind of Glenn and I have been talking about what he's been working on in terms of his new novel and some of the issues that have been coming up in it and the issues that have been coming up for him, right, are sort of very related to existentialism and existential philosophy and even psychotherapy. So, Glenn, can you tell us a little bit about the novel? Uh, well, I have a draft written that's uh, not very good. So uh, <laughs> I, I kind of have to go back to the drawing board. But the... Uh, the general idea, it's, it's kind of a, a, a follow-up to the Bethany Park that I wrote. So that was about a 13-year-old kid who's, you know, trying to make the track team and have some other kind of concerns. So I try to weave up. And that, a little bit of phil philosophical thinking, that would be kind of ir ironical that a 13-year-old kid would have while he's still putzing around in, in general life. And so this is uh, that same kid about five years later. Um, he's working at a, he's a senior in high school, just about to get out of high school. And he's working at a, a, a gas station, the old fashioned full service gas stations where there's no self-serve, you know, when you check the tires and check the oil and wash the windows and everything. And, uh, and it's right on an interstate. So there's a lot of people traveling from all over the country, stopping by, coming by. So the guy is, uh, trying to make sense of what he's going to do with his life, you know, getting out of high school is kind of a benchmark in, in, a, in a person's life. He's trying to make sense of what he's trying to do and he's talking about roads and directions and he's kind of using maps that he's unconsciously and ironically commenting on his own life about how lost he is. So that's my general premise and I'm still working to make it uh, readable. Interesting, and what are some of the themes that you want to explore in it? Uh, well, like when, when you mentioned, well, you talk a lot about authenticity on your, your, your show and on your, your, your tweets and that. And so, um, uh, an inspiration for this novel is, is, a is what I think is a, a great novel. Walker Percy's the movie goer. I don't know if you've ever read that, but it is a, a really good novel. It's about a guy in his thirties, probably young thirties, who's facing, you know, what, what you would call a, a, an existential crisis where he's, he's realizing his life is kind of a, a sham and uh he doesn't know what he's going to do to try to live a more authentic existence and he's struggling with that so i mean that's i'm, I'm just kind of transposing that to an 18 year old kid so he he of course doesn't have the experience that uh binks bowling the prot protagonist in the movie goer has but he's still dealing with the same issues that he sees grown-ups and and already as a kid he can see in grown-ups that they're living kind of artificial lives or they're not really true to themselves and are hypocritical and he's trying to figure out a way not to be like that and but he doesn't know what to do in order to not be like that so that's where he's kind of lost he he sees it's important to to try to be an authentic human being but he's finding out that's a pretty difficult that's a pretty difficult job yeah it's it is difficult because society tells us who we have to be right our, our, our parents our uh, social group uh, there's this there's pressure coming from all these different areas and a lot of them are always giving you feedback telling you what path you should go on but then the thing is a lot of times it's like 
but what do you actually want for yourself, right? Do you, do you want to listen to what society tells you is a good path? Uh, sometimes, yeah. It depends. You know, sometimes you could see something like, you know, maybe somebody is meant to be a doctor or a lawyer or, or a certain profession or get a certain level of status. But not a lot of these things that are available for people to do, it's, it's not a one-size-fits-all kind of thing. Right, um, right. It's, it's hard because a lot of people have to discover for themselves what is it you really want to do? What is it that you're meant to do? Like, what's your, what's your purpose, right? Yeah. And I could see how for the 18-year-old character, right? I mean, how, how is uh, he, he needs to, I mean, I'm guessing because I'm, spe- you know, I'm, I'm just learning about this. But I mean, I could see how for that character, he has to see what it is that he truly wants to do. Does he want to do what everybody else is doing? And uh, what is what is authentic to him? What's real to him? Yeah. 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 That, I mean, so, so that, that's difficult. And, uh, you know, when you're 18 years old, you don't have a lot of context in the world to, upon which to make your decisions because you've you're basically led the life that your parents have, have led for you. And you, you're, you're just starting to branch out a little bit. And you mentioned a good point, you know, like uh, society kind of dictates the way that you should go. And you're sometimes your, your peers, your friends are kind of pushing you in a way. And that's, that's not always wrong. So in, in this kid's case, he, his, uh, his family expects him to go to college and his two best friends are uh, excited about going to college. But this kid is not really intellectually interested in and so he's he's feeling kind of forced to go to school which is you know not a bad thing for an 18 year old kid to do but it's something he's not comfortable with so it's not always that society is leading you wrong or telling you uh to go in directions that are not good for you i mean sometimes Mm -hmm. you have to find out when you're being led somewhere well maybe that's a path you need to go for a while anyway so it's, it's 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 pretty difficult and um, I think that's in relation to, to Kierkegaard's thinking that um, you're most in despair when you don't know you're in despair and that, you know, you have to come to understand that life is a struggle and you're struggling to find your true self or your authentic self. And to think that uh, it shouldn't be a struggle is, is the confusion. So I think that might be what this kid is experiencing to he doesn't realize how difficult life is supposed to be. And so he's, he's just beginning to encounter that. Interesting. And that really reminds me of, so we had William Irwin on the show. I think it was about a year and like a month ago, something like that. Like, something in, like, that. Something like yeah. in the beginning of May. So um, William Irwin is, he's a pretty notable existential philosopher. And um, so he wrote the follow-up to Siddhartha, which obviously you guys know. Yeah, yeah. So he wrote um, a book called Little Siddhartha. And it was pretty much the theme of it was the sort of relationship between father and son. And the way he kind of explained it was, well, I don't want to say explain, the way the story sort of narrated is that the father is this like really kind of controlling narcissist and the son is this really sort of empathic, compassionate kid. And so the tug of war is the father trying to sort of turn him into this um, kind of like, 
I don't know if this is the right term for the time, but it was like a business magnate. Like he wanted him to sort of become, he wasn't an industrialist because it was way beyond, way before the time. But the idea was that he wanted him to become kind of like one of these top tier merchants. And mm-hmm. the kid had his own ideas. He said, look, you know, I, I really like poetry and I like philosophy and I like to think about life and I like to think about things. And his dad was like, yeah, I don't care. This is not going to pay the bills. Like this is not enough for you. And so right. what was interesting about that, it wasn't that he said like um, in any sort of vague sense where he said like, look, you need to be able to take care of yourself, you know, however you do it, that's definitely up to you. But I want you to know that if one avenue doesn't work out, I'm going to try to push you elsewhere. It was like, no, no, you need to be a merchant. Like, this is the only path that makes sense. Anything else in life is a waste of time. And so right. in, the, in the book, it was like this sort of tug of war where, and it wasn't even a tug of war that was so much external as it was internal. Because on the one hand, obviously, because he was a boy, he wanted to please his dad. And then on the other hand, you know, he wanted to be who he was, who he was internally, right? He wanted to be true to himself. And so kind of as the book progresses, you see it like little by little, as the kid kind of tries to pull away, the dad tries to gain more and more control over his life and becomes sort of more of a, or more of a micromanager. And so what's so cool about the story is, uh, is it's a prominent theme and obviously in existentialism. We can even kind of go back to Sartre and even Simone de Beauvoir as it pertains to feminism and sort of obviously what it means to be a woman and kind of in William Irwin's idea his conception was essentially that a lot of times that authenticity is sort of stifled, not only obviously by society at large, but by the people that are supposed to kind of help you become the best version of yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's pretty, yeah, that's pretty interesting. Little Siddhartha. Right? Yeah. Is that what you said? Yeah. yeah. Yep. That's probably something I should read. Yeah, it's so, a very good one. Uh, yeah, I think in this case, so, so these stories are pretty personal. So, you know, that the, the story of the 13 year old kid was pretty much based on my life. And so, so will this story be. And so uh, I, I don't think there, of course, there's always tension between the father and the son, and that would be the case in this story. But is, there's not so much a controlling aspect of the father. I mean, there's a two strong wills kind of battling against each other. And of course, the father wants the son to make some choices that are going to lead to a comfortable uh, existence. But he, he understands you got to you, you, you're going to take whatever road you're going to take. You're just trying to ha- hover around a little bit to make sure you don't go off road too far. So, uh, and, that, and that's kind of some of the questions the kid is dealing with too. So he, he knows, uh, he knows that he has to f- follow certain, once some certain road, he just can't go four wheeling all over the country. He has to follow up a path. And uh, um, I don't think uh, if it's a story about a boy uh, that a story like this has to involve the father because you're dealing with father issues some way. It, if not a literal father, at least a father figure in your mind, you know. Yeah, and, and a lot of times the way people find out what it is that they want to do is by doing something they didn't want to do in the first place. Because by going through um, that struggle or by seeing what it is that you don't like, you, you start to see what it is that you, that you do. Um, for example, there were like, uh, in, my, in my personal life, um, so uh, with my dad, right? Um, so I guess I won't get too specific, but when I was around 15, um, he was thinking, okay, it's time for you to get a job, you know, be a man, take, you know, learn, learn what it is to make money, have your own money, all of that. And that's, that's, a great, that's a great thing. Uh, the job though that I did, it was like, I was working in a warehouse, like a kind of like manual labor, all that. And, um, I thought I was going to be into it, 
but I don't know. I guess I, I had I, maybe because I was just 15, I had this bad mindset about it. I didn't like it at all. And uh, sad to admit this, but after just two days of working there, <laughs> I quit, you know, <laughs> and that's not gr- that's not good at all. actually. But depends on who you ask. <laughs> yeah. But um, I saw that by at least trying to do something like that, you know, what I, what it is that I didn't want to do. So I kind of knew as, as I was going further in life, maybe what kind of job I was interested in or uh, what it is that I really wanted to do, which is more along the lines of kind of like what we're doing here. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. yeah, you can see how that's not related to that kind of job, but yeah. Interesting. And yeah. then it's like sometimes what happens is obviously like when you're in some sort of, I don't know, academic or work setting and you feel like you're forced into it, even as even if in the time, right, in the kind of short term, it feels awful. In the long term, it could kind of be a springboard for you. Right. So it's like you could kind of get to know or get to really sort of seriously consider what it is that you want. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I had the same type of experience. I remember when I was, um, when I was, oh, so like, so my kind of stepfather, I mean, that's something that I've talked about ad nauseum, not really going to get into it anymore. Uh, but the point was that he was obviously like one of these like pushy people. So um, when he's like, look, you don't want to kind of go to school, then obviously you're going to have to go to work. And so for me, I ended up like working in these like different retail stores, even as a security guard at some point. Um, and so I absolutely hated it. And so for me, the thing was like, I kind of realized back then that no matter what I had to do or no matter what I was going to do, I had to go back to school. And so like, look, I didn't like the way he went about it because I never really think that he cared about me in that sense Mm -hmm. because he never really sat down with me and said, okay, hey, let's talk about what you want to do for a living. It was just like, you have a choice. You either go to school or you go to work. I don't care what you do. Just pretty much do whatever. And so kind of for me, even though the experience was really crappy of like working, you know, kind of what minimum wage at that time was $7 and 15 cents. So working for seven dollars and 15 cents an hour was obviously really shitty and so at the very least it kind of got me to think about like okay what do i want to do if i'm going back into academia in some way because i can't do this for the rest of my life yeah yeah right i mean that's a uh, that's an important part of the, the the learning process so even when you're confused and you you really have no understanding of what you want to do uh your experiences of finding out what you don't want to do are, are very informing too. So like I, I said, in my personal life, I really had no interest in, in, uh, in going to school, going to college, or I had no intellectual interest. And in, uh, so I did different jobs. I worked in gas stations and factories and worked in uh, a, a construction job for a while. And so uh, I realized, oh man, I don't want to do this. And so uh, that, that, that kind of provides a different context to look at to, to you're looking at school or maybe having a an office job so you could say well that doesn't that doesn't sound too appealing but it might sound less unappealing than um, some of the other jobs that I've had and you know you you just kind of see what the world has to offer you and sometimes you're choosing what's least offensive rather than something you are excited about you know and you later in life when you have some uh opportunity you might start then thinking about what what interests you or excite you but sometimes you just have to find something that you could tolerate yeah and, and that's and, mm-hmm. and that's that's an important part of life too 
you know, and then sometimes kind of what holds us back is a sense of hopelessness. So even if you have a sense or an image of what it means to be your authentic self, like in terms of your career, your relationships, you know, whatever it is, um, it, there's also a possibility that if you don't feel like you can actualize whatever that potential is, you're going to be the one to hold yourself back. And I remember academically, that's what it pretty much was for me. So when I chose like work over school, it was literally because I just didn't have any faith in myself. So kind of the other aspect of me going back to school was not, I mean, obviously it was also like the fact that I didn't want to work for seven an hour but um but then it was also the that i had support and i had people pretty much helping me and telling me that i could succeed academically mm -hmm. whereas like when i was starting out i didn't have that so in the context of authenticity glenn um what do you feel like are some of the factors that could pretty much hold us back from becoming the true selves outside of kind of society the ones that are more sort of intrapersonal as opposed to interpersonal um i've i've come to think uh and, and I know I've been influenced here by uh, Walker Percy again, mm -hmm. that um, Percy was, I guess, I think people describe him as a Catholic existentialist. So he, he was a pretty devout Catholic. At the same time, he wrote five or six of these great existentialist n novels. And um, what he perceived, and he was writing in, I think mainly in the fifties in and sixties, this happened. And um, he was writing about what he saw as a, a in our society, we're, we're living in a, at a time when the traditional ways of life were decaying. So, you know, in older generations, this was, if you see even just America, this was a pretty Christian kind of Protestant oriented place. And that started to break down in the 20th century and people have kind of left uh, mainstream devout Christianity in numbers, you know, and, and then there's so much diversity in, in other people of other cultures, other nations come in here. So that's, it's not that say America is a white Christian nation. There's just so many other ways of life you can look. And then there are so many opportunities that people have in life, you know, and then, and that's something that this society has afforded people that, you know, they can choose what they want to do with their life work wise or, or family wise. And so you have a lot more opportunities that leads to a lot more confusion. And that was his general thinking. The life was a lot easier, say 300 years ago when you didn't have a lot of options. You just kind of grew up and uh, got married or, you know, started your family. You didn't really, you don't really have a lot of choices. You just kind of get to it. Um, but in today's world, we have so many opportunities and there's no quote right answer what you're supposed to do and that really makes life difficult for people because of all their uh the anxiety of, of of having all these choices available to them and he saw that was kind of a breakdown of our society and um kind of related to that he thinks it's important or he he thought it was important to 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 like know your past so you know you might know where you are at the current moment and you see all these opportunities or directions that you might go, but it's important to know how you got to where you are at the moment in making decisions about the future. And um, so some of that is not affected by you. You know, you have no choice about where you're born or when you're born or who your parents are. But, you know, from every moment from that, you're becoming incrementally a little more responsible for your existence all the time. So by the time you're 18, you know, you're pretty responsible for your for yourself, regardless of how good or bad of a start you got, you're you're responsible for dealing with the conditions that you were given. And he thought that was important to 
to have a pretty good understanding of your history as a as a way of understanding what your future is going to be and um that's that's kind of what i'm trying to talk about in this novel um i'm using the roads as an an analogy or maybe even a metaphor so you know if you're at a certain spot you don't know which way to go sometimes you have to know how you got to where you are right now to know which direction you want to take in the in the future yeah and so I, mm -hmm. so so that's kind of a larger view that's a, that kind of takes you out of the immediate you know world of people you're dealing with and puts it in some kind of abstract kind of thinking but i think that's important too right and why i love that idea so much is because it's very sort of um it's what's the word um so it's very kind of auto, i guess based on automatic habits and behaviors like a lot of times when people do things um they're not really aware of the fact that sort of they're behaving in a way that was uh let's say this um, that was let's say relevant or pertinent in, in any particular context in the past but is now not so helpful anymore so i think so my understanding of what you're saying is when you're looking at your past you're pretty much empathizing with yourself in terms of kind of your defenses right you're sort of understanding yeah. why it is yeah, why it is that you've kind of developed these habits and how they've served you at some point in the past but maybe if kind of if you're if you're sort of aware of what they're doing to you now or how they're affecting you now, then you kind of have, you're at this fork in the road where now you get to choose whether you want to hold on to those old coping mechanisms or whether you want to try something new and adapt to the context. Also, when you're doing that, you're, you're kind of zooming out and you're taking a different perspective on your life, mm -hmm. right? You're not, because when you're in the moment and you're surrounded by all this stimulus, this person's telling you this, that person's telling you that, you're feeling a certain way, your, your attention is so... Um, it's so suppressed to what's currently happening. Right. But uh, Glenn, what I like about what you're saying is what you, what you end up doing is you kind of take this long view of how you got where you are and it, it takes a, a different kind of look at yourself that gives you a better perspective on what to do moving forward, mm -hmm. which, which is smart, right? Because it, it, again, if you're, attention's all in what's happening right now mm -hmm. uh it's it's hard to know what to do you're kind of like ha 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 you know your, your attention's going all over the place you you don't know how to move forward mm -hmm. so i like that yeah, yeah I, I liked it too i think the zoom the zoom uh perspective is a good idea so uh i kind of look at it as look at on a map you know if you mm -hmm. if you think about say the little town that you're living in and you think of that as your world you your, your choices are limited or, or certainly you're thinking about your opportunity for changes are limited. But if you if you look at a, a bigger map from a higher level, you see, oh my God, there are there are thousands of these little towns and they're all connected by these roads and they're bigger towns. And so uh, the perspective of whether you're looking at it from a bird's eye view or the ground eye view really provides the, the context where you can see what choices you, you, you can make. It may be, what you should make but certainly what you can make yeah and sometimes people really get stuck in that self-preservation mode where like all they see is kind of um i guess it's sort of not only i guess the past yes but then also all they see is kind of sort of the things that they should be afraid of where they see the sort of the fear that's behind them in front of them and they kind of get stuck in this mode where it's like the only thing that they could kind of see is how they can survive and the sort of ways of coping with the world obviously are just ways of survival or techniques for survival so they get kind of stuck in these patterns where they're literally just repeating the same behaviors that they repeated before but again kind of context contextually dependent right they don't really serve them in any significant way anymore 
and what's what's important is from the perspective of an 18 year old it, for example say he's feeling fear about going to college right uh, there's there's other there's another perspective to it right where it's not like something he's inclined to do yeah. but say it's it's a we go to the fear part of it right sometimes i mean especially if you're 18 you don't have the the context to know that maybe you have to do something you're afraid of in order to grow right uh sometimes you know what you might do when you're younger is instead of try to face your fear you try to escape from it and that could cause a whole bunch of issues that then you know later you look at yourself you're like oh no i i could have gone you know i could have gone to college or i could have done this move or i could have done that move uh had i known this would have been better for me if i uh, did something that I'm afraid of. Right. And even had the confidence, right? Or somebody told that kid, like kind of what I was talking about for my own story, that if somebody told me beforehand, right, before I went out into the working world, like, hey, no, you can actually succeed in college. I mean, because the fear itself is rational, right? The fear makes right. sense, right. right? If you really don't believe you're going to succeed, you're obviously not going to try. So the idea is, and obviously I want to kind of take this to Glenn too, mm -hmm. is um, my thinking is that when it comes to authenticity and kind of helping people express it, um, even helping ourselves express it, right? What we need is encouragement. So, I mean, for Glenn, like, what do you think um, in terms of fostering authenticity, what do you feel like are the elements of that? If there is a formula. Uh, well, I'm, I'm not sure there is a formula. Yeah. I guess, I guess, uh, uh, well, I think maybe each person has to find out for themselves what yeah. their individual formula is. And that's kind of the difficulty of that. But, you know, I think, I think you're right. Having some sense of uh, support from someone who you have regard for helps, helps a lot. So even if like say in, in, in the world that, that, that I grew up in, and, and, and this kid in this, in this story grew up in, um, he came from a, a family who, uh, wanted him to 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 leave home and, and go to school continue with his education and they thought that he was more than capable of doing that pretty well so when he had friends who were going to do that as well so that's I guess you could call that peer pressure but that's also kind of support because you're in a world in which people are pretty confident that this is is the right thing to do um but you, there's uh, at, at an individual level, and, and, and maybe there's reasons for this too, I don't know, but you could be afraid of just leaving home. So say some of your friends are, they're going to go away to start their lives, but you can, for whatever reason, kind of be afraid of, of, of leaving your cocoon, you know, and, and if that's the reason you don't leave, then you, you've created a situation for yourself. You're going to have to deal with it sometime. Like, like, uh, like you said, Alan, you later on, you're going to realize, oh, I could have done this and life would have worked out like this. But I whether it was emotionally ready or I was afraid or something like that. And and I think coming to terms with that is a good part of authenticity. You you uh, there's a lot in our life that we don't have control over and we are just uh, affected by it. But there's a lot in our life that we're responsible for and we have to take responsibility for that. So like, like Leon, you were mentioned, say you have some coping mechanisms, or whatever. So you got through life in a certain way. Uh, and, and that might well have been necessary at the time. But like you said, you come to a point where you, you need to act in a different way to, to keep moving forward. And you have to come to terms with that. Where if you say the person didn't change 
their coping mechanisms, uh, they have to come to terms with that, that that was, that was their choice not to, not to make that change. And that's, that's what's kind of hard. To me, that's the hardest part of authenticity is, is being honest with yourself about yourself. Right. And I kind of also just kind of want to be clear, like for our audience, because sometimes the way existentialism, whether psychotherapy or philosophy is misinterpreted, is that what we're saying is pretty much, I mean, okay, let me not say it's fully misinterpreted. This was also partially Sartre's fault, who said that pretty much we are just pure freedom and kind of we can do whatever we want, right? And life is sort of our responsibility fully. So that's not true. Um, so right. the way we kind of conceptualize it in existential therapy is the way that people sort of react and their coping mechanisms are not their fault. So they're pretty much reactions to toxic environments. There's a reason why they responded to their environments they did, the way they did, right. right? And so what we usually mean when we say that a person has to take responsibility at some point, it's not that they need to automatically change and just switch over and say, no, no, I'm not using these coping mechanisms anymore. I'm now using these healthy ones. It's not that simple. So what we're right. saying is right. like, right, what we're saying by taking responsibility is not that you have to by yourself change. It's just that you would need to ask for help, right? Whether that's in the form of a therapist, uh, whether that's in the form of even a life coach, Right. Your friends, right? Friends, right? All, or even I would say some combination of the sort of the elements. Right. But the idea is that nobody can really do it on their own, and especially when we're talking about trauma, it's very, very unlikely that somebody can just automatically change their coping mechanisms by even just accepting that those coping mechanisms are unhealthy and they're not helping them in any significant way and are actually obviously harming. So kind of just to be clear, right, because a lot of times when existentialism is sort of attacked, the idea is like, oh, well, this person can just change. And I absolutely agree. Well, so, uh, Glenn, to what you were saying, um, I think that I, I, if I didn't misunderstand, you're saying that pretty much you're responsible for everything. And I mean, in the sense, so I understand what you just explained. That's to be more nuanced about it, right? To, to say that when you're being responsible for everything, there are some things that happen to you that's not necessarily your fault, right? Fair enough. But, um, Glenn, what I like about what you're saying, though, is when you when you say that you're responsible for everything that happens or your choices or your reactions it actually kind of puts you in in uh, what's a good way it, it kind of empowers you right it, it puts you more instead of like at the effect of what happens uh, more at the cause right so it changes your relationship the moment you take responsibility you, you can if you, for example if, if somebody admits to themselves everything that happened is my fault right then then they know that it's in their power to change like either their reactions or how they how they deal with certain situations instead of thinking they're they're a victim to everything that happens um not that there aren't victims right but to make the point about what it means to be responsible i mean i think that's what's important and interestingly enough you can also be both so you can be both responsible and a victim at the same time in some way. And by responsible, I don't mean blame, where you would say like, it's the person's fault, right? So, I mean, okay, so this is a nuanced topic and I'm gonna say this really carefully because I obviously don't wanna be misinterpreted, but um, let's say when you're a therapist and you're like dealing with actual like abuse victims or um, people who've, let's say, been assaulted in any sort of way, the misinterpretation a lot of times is in the mainstream is something along the lines of, well, if you tell the person they're responsible, you're blaming them, right? That's not what that means. So what it means right, is that right, there needs right. to be a combination of factors, right? On the one hand, obviously you would tell the person it's not their fault because it isn't, right? There's no question about that. So when we're talking about responsibility, what we're really just saying is, okay, what are the elements that contributed to this? And let's say, how can we prevent that? If 
a possible, you can't really prevent anything, but let's say, how can we reduce the chance of something like that happening to you again? So that's what we mean by responsibility. Right, so right. we mean that the person can take some action, right? To like, let's say again, can't eliminate anything, but to reduce the chances of, let's say, being a victim in the future, which again, does not mean that anybody's blaming the victim, right? That, and if, if anybody does do that, that's obviously wrong, because regardless of what scenario the person is in, nobody deserves that kind of treatment. So the idea is to sort of figure out the nuance between obviously responsibility and then sort of, you know, the external factors that contributed to whatever your suffering is. Yeah. It depends on the situation. Yeah. yeah, Responsibility and blame are two entirely different concepts. Yeah. So I agree. So, um, wait, go ahead. Can you, can you define them for us, please? Like what's the, what's the difference between the two and your understanding? Well, I, uh, I I think I'll try to get back to it at the end. So I, I, I had this, comment I wanted to make. So mm-hmm. I, I agree with you, Leon, that we um, you're talking about, say, changing your behavior. It's not as easy as saying, well, I'm going to turn left or I'm going to turn right. It's not that easy. But uh, like you were saying, Alan, but you 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 can't be the, the complete victim. You're responsible for uh, kind of instigating the change. So whether that's associating with different people, whether that's saying, okay, I'm going to I'm going to try to start thinking differently about myself or, or the perspective of that. So you're re- responsible is, is that you, you're the only one who can begin to affect the change. So you're going to need a lot of help along the way, but you're the only one who can begin to affect the change. And blame is like much more s- simple. Like if you push someone in the road, well, you could get your, 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 you're wrong there. You, you could be blamed for that. That's kind of malicious. I don't think of a, responsibility of it is a matter of being malicious or 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 purposefully damaging in that in that sense i mean you could you could be completely uh with good intentions and still be responsible for the outcome of something and that's that's something different than than blame yeah and a lot of times, unfortunately, kind of the, and I would say all of the time, if not a lot of the times, kind of our beliefs are the culprits. So like, um, yeah. so the sessions and the times that I've dealt with people who are abuse victims, obviously kind of um, sometimes what happens is when, you know, in, again, the mainstream, whatever, I don't really like the term, but I'm going to use it. Um, so what happens is people are like, well, why did this person stay, right? Like if the person is continuously abused, right, why are they doing something that's harmful? So because of their belief system. So if you actually talk to these people, what you would find out is that a lot of times they think of the abuse as actually a form of love. Um, they a lot of times think that that is the only form of love. If not, it's just available to them, available to anybody because they associate one with the other. Mm-hmm. And they actually believe in the explanations that the abuser gives them. So if they tell them like, oh, well, you know, you were the cause of this, then why would I leave this person? I mean, it's, it's my fault, right? So shouldn't I then change? So the idea is when we talk about blame and responsibility, right? Responsibility means in this case that it's your sort of responsibility, obviously, to get help and to go see a therapist, which is a hard thing in itself, especially right, right. if the person believes that they are the problem, right? I mean, a lot of times they're not going to want to deal with the issue. Uh, but the idea is it's your responsibility, if there is any, right, to examine your belief system and to examine how your belief system is contributing to your actions and to the choices that you're making but blame would obviously mean oh well it's your fault right you're the reason why you believe the things you do that's not true you can't just tell somebody you can't force yourself to believe anything right beliefs are kind of there's there's sort of systems that you could definitely examine and that you can definitely um look for evidence for and against obviously but they're not things that you could just sort of imbue in yourself right
right? It's like we see this with religion. Nobody can really believe in anything that they don't want to believe in or that their brain tells them isn't true. So the idea is when it comes to blame and responsibility, the belief system is always a significant part of responsibility. That when right. uh, if a person especially doesn't believe that they can be responsible, that life sort of happens to them rather than they happen to it, then what's going to happen is obviously they're going to live in a very passive way. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's um, yeah, it's it's crazy. Yeah, because um, so that's that's part of authenticity, right? I mean, being able to see that it's your. I mean, okay. So uh, barring the nuance that you gave, that you're responsible for how you live your life, for what choices you make, how they impact you, how they impact the people around you, right? And I mean. How could I put this? Uh, well, mm, so authenticity, I mean, for example, uh, what, are, what are some, so for example, what's the difference between when somebody's being authentic and when somebody's not, right? Mm -hmm. So if, let's say, um, somebody's being authentic when they're being true to themselves, right? When they're taking responsibility, when they, maybe they do the thing that they're afraid to do. Um, or when they're not lying to themselves. When they're not lying to themselves. When they're, oh, okay, when they're acting through their own intentions right. instead of through somebody else's. Right. Um, somebody who's not authentic, right? I mean, like, for example, when somebody's not being authentic, right? They're, they're acting kind of like through, uh, not a character, but how, how should I put this? Like through, through, it's like they're living in reaction. Interesting. It's like they've kind of built an avatar for themselves. Yeah, right. It's like uh, their ego. Right. right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I don't know. What What would you guys say is uh, like keeps people from being authentic? Mm -hmm. Oh, Glenn, what do you think? Uh, well, what you just mentioned is is, is pretty interesting. I, you could look at it as kind of like role playing. If you if you think you're 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 living the life that you think you're supposed to live, or somebody else wants you to live, then you're not living your life. Mm -hmm. And in fact, that was a that was a theme in, in the movie goer and that this character watches movies and that's how he really identifies with the world. He, he kind of sees roles on the screen and he says, oh, I could live like that. You know, he's, so he's, he's not living his life. He's living this, this kind of life that he's seen on a, on a big screen. He said, Hey, that looks like a good way to live. And, uh, and, but that's only temporary, you know, but so that's clearly, that's a person who, is not uh, have found an authentic his authentic self anyway and yeah. you know if you're like you said uh if you're not acting in your intentions if if you're making choices to to please other people or because you don't want to upset someone else or because you think that's the way people are supposed to live well then you're not you're not making your choice and uh that's uh, to me that's the the deep seatedness of, of of authenticity i guess you Sometimes it's hard to find the strength to actually make that the choice for you to, to, to act on your own intentions as opposed to other people's intentions that are being imposed on you. Right. And you know, mm -hmm. I was going to say that, you know, that's real. That happens a lot when you're, uh, well, you when you're a child, of course, your, your parents are your intentions, but even when you're yep. 16, 17, 18 years old, you, you're trying to break away from that, but that's still that's still kind of the world that you're living in. Other people's intentions are proscribing your life, and 
and that's the difficulty of, of that time of life because you're you're trying to find your own intentions yeah and that's sort of on wow so that that's true obviously and i think kind of that begs the question of right how important should comfort be to a person who's let's say over 18 right and obviously contextually dependent where they are in their lives particular disabilities they may have but the idea is that kind of when we get to be 18 right a lot of us have this sort of fork in the road where not everybody obviously because some parents are more supportive than others but a lot of us kind of face their fork in the road where we have to decide do we do what mom and dad tell us to or what they want for us or and pretty much obviously sort of live in their kind of cocoon or do we go out into the world and do something differently whereas kind of on the other hand right we might have maybe financial stability taken away from us maybe a roof over our head taken away from us because a lot of times what happens is obviously when parents get upset they punish their children by taking something away that's significant for them and so when it comes to kind of authenticity the struggle that we have is we have to figure out what does it mean to sort of be a person right or what does it mean to be a person who's worthy of living right and of course everybody's worthy of living but what i mean by that is what does it mean to like live a life that's worth living right so and it's a struggle for a lot of people because for them unfortunately comfort sort of you know takes the kind of takes what's the word um Precedence? Yeah, pretty much it's, it's becomes the priority for people and then they kind of go away and or they kind of look back on their life rather and they think, man, I can't believe I spent so much time, right, sort of living for comfort, right, sort of living to please people. And so a lot of the people that I kind of see as a, as a therapist, they kind of struggle with what does it mean to sort of be safe and also what does it mean to be liked, right? Why do I want to be liked by other people? Why do I want to be accepted by my family, my friends? Do I want to be accepted for my own values and do I want to use them as kind of mirrors, right? Do I want to use them as reflectors where here I am sort of actualizing my values and they are in turn telling me like, hey, we like you because you're living up to those standards, right? Or is it that we want to be liked because we're constantly living up to other people's standards and their values and so i mean that kind of begs the question again of what does it mean to live a life that's worth living is it worth sort of giving up the idea or not the idea i guess the desire of being liked by people who might not like you so much for being yourself or is it better or are you better off being the person that you want to be obviously and then having maybe maybe some people hate you for I mean, yeah, uh, right. Uh, I mean, if you're, if you're being true to yourself, right? I mean, a lot of times what happens is you do have to deal with that. Some people are going to like you and some people are really not going to, right? right? But I mean, that I mean that, that's not in every case, but that, that comes with the territory, right? Mm -hmm. if, if you want to express yourself fully and let the chips fall where they may, mm -hmm. right? I mean, yeah, th there's, there's consequences to that, right? Yeah. And also, one thing that I noticed, uh, I don't know why I didn't bring it up before, is everyone who we see as like an icon in our society, like a celebrity um, or, or somebody, somebody famous, something like that, mm -hmm. a lot of these people, I'm not going to say every single one of these people, but the reason why we like them is because there's something about them when they perform or when they're out there that that's it's them being authentic, them being real, them being true to themselves. That usually is what gets them their audience or gets them uh, their fans or something like that. Uh, definitely not everybody. I mean, obviously there's actors who are, I mean, the, I'm sure there's actors who are, who are assholes. There's, there's musicians like, you know, uh, not that being an asshole doesn't mean you can't be authentic either. Right, but they're authentically assholes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like that's a real asshole. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, at least they're being true to themselves, I guess. <laughs> yeah. So actually, that's true, though. Uh, some people uh, like 
like assholes, right? Yeah. So that's a different conversation, <laughs> right? But, um, but right. Uh, so it, it's interesting. It's like when somebody finds uh, what it means to be authentic, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of times they'll start to notice as like a symptom, not that you should be trying to be authentic to get this, right. but as a symptom, people start to like you more or appreciate you more. And they start to, uh, whatever path that you take, even though in the beginning, uh, you might get a lot of resistance from family, all these people kind of want you to stay in your cocoon. Mm -hmm. Uh, Eventually, once you do make your own path, they actually start to be okay with it. And um, for the most part. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think a lot of times like family members think they're really being helpful. Like when they're telling you like, so Glenn, in our culture, the thing is like, if you're not a doctor or a lawyer, like our parents are just like, okay, you're like wasting your life. But I get from their perspective, they think they're being helpful because in their minds, yeah. they're like, well, this yeah. is the only thing that's going to really provide. It's black and white thinking, obviously. But to them, it's like, it's the only thing that's going to ever provide you stability. And we get that, right? So the battle with the tug of war is not necessarily between somebody who has like malintent or wants to harm you in some way. The battle is literally between two different ideologies. Your belief system says this is the only way that you can be successful our belief system is a bit more open-minded so it's sort of this tug of war where the idea is hopefully somewhere in the long run if you do choose the thing that you want that eventually you get to show them like oh hey i actually could have done this thing and been successful here it is mm-hmm. yeah. yeah that's that's funny you bring that up i have a uh, a friend who, who who's a retired judge and he always said when he grew up he, he knew since he was a little kid he either had to be a doctor or a lawyer and he couldn't stand the sight of blood, so he knew since kindergarten he was going to be a lawyer. Uh, <laughs> and that, that, was, that was what his parents or his whole family had planned for him. So there was no choice in the matter. And uh, it's not that his parents didn't care about him. They just saw that as how uh, he could best live his life. You know? And so that's, uh, most of us have a little more freedom than that in, in the choices we're going to take. But that's kind of interesting you bring that up. Was he happy? Was he happy with his decision? Yeah. So, uh, it, fortunately for him, it turned out to be a kind of a, a discipline that he was very interested in anyway. So it, it worked out good in his case, but you yeah. know, in other instances, it, it could have been less, less interesting or less fortunate, but like you were mentioning a while back comfort. So it's not just the people you're in. You, you know, you could have a, a being a profession that's providing some pretty good material comfort, but you know, you have no interest in that or you, you, you don't think you're maybe serving society as well as you could. And so it, it takes a bit of gumption to say, no, I'm going to do something else that's going to uh, provide a, a, a lot less comfortable standard of living. But I think that is uh, a better use of me in the world doing some work. You know, that's, that's not an easy decision to make sometimes too, to give up to give up that comfort, especially if, if you have a family that's kind of come, become used to that level of comfort too. And you're asking more than just yourself to change your lifestyle. Yeah. And sometimes for people, I guess it's okay for it to just be a means to an end rather than the end in itself. Like if they just focus on the bigger picture of what the job is providing for them, for their family members. I mean, the idea is obviously becomes easier to tolerate, but ideally, and I don't know, I mean, this is ideally, but I think it's definitely possible. You have the sort of best of both, the best of both worlds, or you have a sense of comfort and obviously in terms of your salary, but then on top of that, you have somebody, something that you not necessarily find uh, brings you joy because that doesn't have to be the end goal, but at least something that brings you meaning 
meaning. Right. Yeah. yeah, it has to be meaningful because nothing. And I say at least. I really shouldn't have said at least, but it should bring you meaning because the idea is you can never have a job that's like always making you happy. I don't. I've never like you know these people who like these Instagram like influencers who are like, oh, I love waking up on Mondays. Mondays is like my favorite day of the week. Full of shit. Nobody yeah. loves waking up on Mondays to go to work. Give me a break. Right. But yeah. So, but the idea is in the bigger picture, you see that if you like the job. <laughs> What that tends to mean is that you find the work to be meaningful, that there are sort of pockets of happiness as well as pockets of sadness. But in the bigger picture, you see that like, oh, this actually adds up to something that's important. Yeah, and I'm glad you actually brought up uh, Instagram influencers, Uh right? Because what's interesting about that path, right? Or even those uh, kids who make money playing video games or uh, uh, people making money off of podcasts and all these alternative kind of to, to the mainstream right. uh, kind of jobs. I would say, you know, it's interesting. Uh, uh, what would you say, what would you say to those uh, kids who, because the thing is when they make that, those decisions early on, mm-hmm. they also have to think, struggle with, you know, should I be fully investing in college? Should I be fully investing in this established profession where, you know, that it's like a, it's uh, it's the beaten path. It's something that you know is reliable that you can do that that'll bring you security. Right. Or should you do this thing that you're actually passionate about doing, mm-hmm. uh, or that you you know at the time you think you're passionate uh, about? Right. And um, I w- yeah, I wouldn't want to say to like every every kid you know that. Uh, I mean, I, rec- I recommend it. You should go to college. You should try all these things. Uh, why not? You know, if you have the opportunity why not yeah just see what the world has to offer right Mm -hmm. but there there comes a time where if you for example somebody wants to try to do one of those other alternative professions i mean obviously their parents initially won't be okay with it not in all cases but stuff like that Mm -hmm. or or their friends are gonna not believe in them or maybe they will it depends right everybody's situation is different but that's that's uh, th- those people have to deal with trying to be authentic too. And it's gotta be really hard, especially initially. Yeah. 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 It's like, um, if you're thinking about like the person who's trying to become something, um, I guess something where a few, to be honest, I mean, I guess this is just what it is where a few people really succeed. Right. I mean, it's like, we're talking about like video gamers who um, obviously get paid in terms of their victories, right. People who enter some kind of sport like boxing, obviously, which we spoke about with Glenn extensively last time, when we're talking about these ideas and these professions, I mean, the essential part of them are, is that you have to literally be the best at it because if you're not, it's very hard to succeed. Yeah, that, that that's true. And, and sometimes I want to give a, you were talking about, uh, no, no one has a job that provides great meaning or joy to them all the time. Right. Like most of the time, that's probably not the case. What you hope is you get little pockets of the joys. Yeah. Of, Man, I like doing this. You know, or, or sometimes a job provides the opportunity for you to have uh, to find meaning. So you, it provides you the, uh, the material comforts that you could live without uh, extreme worry. And then you have some free time to devote to what you might call a vocation that's not bringing, bringing you money, but you're, you're serving uh, the world in some way or serving yourself even in some way, you know, and uh, like that it, I did was first introduced to me by a, a woodworker, one of those guys who makes one of a kind furniture that, you know, sells for a whole lot of money. And 
there's so very few people could buy. And so this guy wrote a few books. His name was James Krenov, and I really liked his philosophy. And he was saying, you have to make what you want to make. You can't worry about if it's going to be sold or for how much it's going to be sold. And uh, he goes, I understand that means you have to find some way to pay your rent and put food on your table. But you do that so that you have some free time so you could do something that has that is not constrained by material needs at all because and that's that's that was his freedom you know what he says so i've had times where i'm doing some you know just rough woodwork or doing some you know construction type work to pay the bills and then when i get home on the weekend i'm making a a chair or a a dresser you know that's really really beautiful but maybe no one's going to buy and uh so uh a, a job is not always supposed to be uh, just psychologically exciting. Sometimes it provides the basis so you could go find some interest and be authentic with yourself. Right. And I was actually thinking of that too when you asked that question. So in terms of like, what would you say to those people who do want to become either influencers or gamers or whatever, right? I mean, I would honestly, my advice would be like literally have a day job. So I'm not against <coughs> obviously becoming any of those things. Look, if you can be a great influencer or a video gamer, great. I mean, obviously it's going to take a lot of time and effort, mm -hmm. but the idea is you also need to have some sort of background, like where you're literally doing something else for a living too on top of that. Like imagine if we were just doing the podcast without a day job. I right? was just thinking. Right? Right? <laughs> <laughs> like that would be awful, right? We can't make a living off of this, at least not yet. So the idea yeah. is that we also, and plus I think also our day jobs kind of in some way obviously influence our work. So the idea is that there has to be, I don't know if has to be is the right term, but I think it's best if there's some sort of synergy where like literally sort of your passion at, uh, let's say your passion in your other work, right? And somehow in, in some way motivates you to do this sort of daily grind or the day to day, right? Which obviously in turns gives you, or not in turn, well, okay, yeah, in turn. So how contributes to obviously your motivation, even if the sort of contribution is just knowing that you have food on the table and obviously you're right. willing or you have an ability to pay your bills. But the idea is unfortunately, unless like you are, you know, kind of a rich kid, what happens is sometimes kids go into like these fields at like 18 years old because they're 18 years old and you want thinking isn't something that just comes naturally for them. They go into these fields thinking like, oh, but I have the talent. Even if that's true, right? That they might have the talent, again, video gaming, influencing, whatever, and they think that talent is going to carry them through. Unfortunately, a lot of times with life, it's just not that simple. Right. I mean, very few people make money at, at, at those types of things that are wonderfully enjoyable. Very few people make money at something like that. So yeah. you, 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 it's not exciting. It's kind of hard to swallow when you're 18 or 19 years old. You need to get a, a durable day job and then do that on your free time, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's smart, right? I mean, you're still carving out time to do that thing that's meaningful to you. And at the same time, you have some security to kind of take care of yourself, be independent. Right. Um, also it depends on your situation. Maybe sometimes people have to work so this way they can help out their family. Right. right? Uh, so, I mean, yeah, it, it's just, it's just smart to, uh, make time for both things, mm -hmm. like uh, that day job and that passion. Yeah. If you can make your passion your work, more power to you, right? right? Um, if you can't, then maybe that's just something where you just want to do a service or 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 an artist, right? Mm -hmm. And not a lot of artists make money uh, doing their work, right? Mm -hmm. So obviously they have to make, you know, make money somehow, right? Mm -hmm. But 
it doesn't mean you don't have to work on your art or that you can't work on your art and you can't still do it anymore and not be true to yourself and be authentic. Right. You know? and, and then Are even, you, go ahead, Glenn. Oh, okay. So I was just going to say, so it doesn't mean you're, you're not authentic because you, you have a day job or, you know, like you're selling out, so to speak. Yeah. You, I think you're even more authentic because you're saying, I have this work I want to do, but it's not going to provide the kind of life that my family needs. I need insurance and food and a house, and you, but I'm going to devote whatever it is, 10 or 15 hours a week to this. And that means that's, that's how you assert your sense of, your sense of authenticity in the world. You know, not, not everyone, say acting, for example, very, very few people make money acting. You know, a very, very few make an exorbitant amount of money, but most actors have day jobs and are working in, say, local theater or uh, smaller plays where they're not paid well enough to, to live on, so they have to uh, uh, support themselves in, in other ways. These are not inauthentic people. These are the most authentic people because they've accepted the, the, the necessity of, 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 of dedicating a large portion of the life to, to an act that's just going to bring in some money, but they haven't given up on life then and said, but I'm still going to do what it is that makes me, me, you know, because some people can say, all right, well, if I can't uh, be a full-time actor, if I have to be an accountant somewhere, then the hell with acting, I'm done with it. Well, that's, that's quitting. Yeah, and uh, how how you assert your authenticity is to say, and then I'm going to do my theater here in the evenings after my accounting job, so to speak. I mean, that's that's an authentic, strong person. Right, and I think just to kind of piggyback off of that, so advice for parents, right, if there is any, is that like hopefully kind of you guys, you know, sort of discontinue thinking of it in the black and white way, where it's either the person has a like full and stable career and has kind of a good, makes a good living, right, or obviously on the other hand, they kind of pursue their passion, that it can be both. And I guess sort of from our, pers or from my perspective at least, so when it comes to kind of Russian parents, unfortunately, they think that like either being a doctor or a lawyer is the only career that offers stability. Obviously, that's not true. So the problem is also if you're becoming a doctor or a lawyer and you also want to become an actor, you can't do that. Right. Lawyers starting out work anywhere from like 60 to 70 hours a week, if not sometimes more. Obviously, when you're in residency, you're not going to be like going to auditions on the side. So the idea is that sort of like um, for, for kids, we would kind of tell them or teach them, hey, you know, you guys have options here. Right. But we want you to know that sort of in our guideline or in the let me see how I can phrase this, uh, in the vagueness of our guideline, like it's not that you have to either become one profession or the other, but you do have to choose something that would allow you to be stable. If you do want to pursue a passion on the side because the idea is again so doctors and lawyers are not the only people that make money and look at the end of the day they're they make a great living, obviously, but if that person doesn't want to make that kind of money, as a parent, you would have to also accept it because really what they only really need is an income to stability if they don't have a family. Um, even if they do have a family, they need pretty much an income that could suffice for themselves and possibly their family. But the idea is that you would have to be open to the fact that this person, right, is willing to take care of him or herself, but on the side that they actually want to pursue their passion. So this way they have a kind of fallback and they don't feel like they're being controlled because what happens unfortunately in the long run is if you try to push someone to a particular profession or you give them like less than a handful of choices, what's going to happen is they're going to rebel and they're just going to do something completely different. And then both of you guys are kind of screwed and you've ruined your relationship. Right. Right. Yeah. So I don't know if you guys, uh, 
follow football. I don't, I don't yeah. so much anymore, but there was a guy named Todd Marinovich. So I, did, I don't know if he's 30 years ago or something. So his, his dad, his dad decided that his son was going to be a quarterback probably from the moment he was born. So he groomed him to, to, to be as healthy and as skilled and as trained as possible. You know, like the, the, poor kid and it turned out he had great athletic talent so he he made it to the nfl and played with the raiders but he was just a psychological mess because his his i mean he his dad just lived his life through his son absolutely and so the, the todd grew up to be a, a you know a professional quarterback you're still a, a a great athlete but he was just a mess because he had never developed internally and his his dad had never let him grow up as a say a whole human being he was just a a factory element from for every day of his life and uh it's just a sad thing so he ended up short-circuiting doing a lot of drugs you know ending his athletic career far earlier than would was necessary because he he just fell apart internally oh my god that reminds me of this boxer what was his name oh glenn you would know Uh, all right i'm gonna look it up in like a second obviously when the spotlight isn't on me huh Vinny? No, not Vinny. Um, so it was another, I'm going to look up the name. So the story with him and Glenn, maybe this will kind of spark your memory. Um, so there's actually a Netflix documentary on him. So the story with him was essentially that his dad, who another one of these kind of narcissists. So he pretty much groomed him to be a fighting machine. And so he said that he never had any affection from his father, unless like he was like punching people and winning his fights. And so his story was so interesting because, well, I mean, even without his father it was an interesting story, but just that relationship made it so interesting because like there was, there was, I think this final kind of point where he eventually realized that his dad actually didn't love him for him, that he just loved what he could do for the family and like sort of the pride that he brought on them. And so there was this point where I remember he was like, um, he talked about being like knocked out and hospitalized. I don't remember who the fight was against. Oh man, I got to look this up because this is really good stuff. So um, he was hospitalized against somebody and then his dad's reaction from, I think it was either his aunt or his mom or somebody told him, maybe not his mom. I wish I remembered more about this. So they told him, they said, oh, well, your dad's reaction was, oh, he, he got hurt. Good. Let him die. He deserves it. So, oh, yeah. And, wow. and, and as soon as he heard that, so what happened was he's like, I, I'm done. He's like, I quit boxing. Like, as soon as he found that out, he's like, I don't care how good I am. I'm never doing this again. So what he really loved was like theater. And so what he found was that he could actually merge the both worlds. Like, so he, he's like, look, I didn't hate boxing. I just wasn't like passionate about it. But he's like, there were people in Hollywood who were like, hey, you know, we can actually like use you as like um, as a trainer, right, for our actors. And so what he ended up doing is he actually ended up transitioning into Hollywood and so what he does now is that he works as like one of these um, stage coaches where like he doesn't teach people how to act but he teaches them how to fight and so what's so cool about that is that he's like look he's like I took this thing that I was really good at obviously I didn't really love but he's like but I turned it into something that I love right because he's like I love acting right he's like I don't love fighting but he's like but in that fight right or or in teaching them how to fight I'm really teaching them how to act right I'm teaching right I I teach them how to become a better fighter and um, I think toward the end he was saying that he pretty much hadn't had any relationship relationship with his father and his dad ended up like dying from uh, cirrhosis or something um, but he said look man he's like at the end of the day you know he's like I realized that what I was doing I was really lo- living for his affection that there was yeah. no part of me right that was actually sort of valuable to him he's like my hands were valuable right sort of my feet were valuable it was what yeah. I kind of brought to the family but as a person he's like he didn't give a shit about what I liked what I wanted what I had what my dreams desires were for the future he's like none of that mattered to him all that mattered was that I was a prize fighter and that he could 
kind of send me out there and he could win and he could feel good about himself. I hadn't heard that story. I'd be I gotta, I'm going to look it up. It yeah, I'm going to look it up. <laughs> yeah. Um, yep. Okay. So <laughs> like, the moment you started looking it up, I was like, oh, dead air. I got that. You know, I just waiting it's for on you Alan. <laughs> um, whatchamacallit. Um, so, uh, Glenn, anyway, I wanted to ask this uh, earlier. Did you, did you hear about uh, Mike Tyson's thinking about coming back to the to the ring? Yeah, so uh, I, 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 I'm hoping that doesn't happen because uh, I guess if he boxes exhibitions, you know, we're kind of glorified sparring matches, that would that would be okay. That probably still is not great, but that would be better. But I, I would hope he doesn't think he should could be boxing yeah because he's 53 now yeah i think who is he fighting against did he say because it's not holyfield well first i heard he was gonna box exhibitions with holyfield so that's another other thing i i wouldn't want to see a vander get hit in the head anymore either it's just yeah people are so much slower in in their 50s you know and um both those guys were really great boxers and i and in at the peak of their youth, I think they would dominate in today's heavyweight uh, uh, category. So they're they were far better in their day than anyone is in this day. But they're those guys are nearing sixty years old, and uh, the human body just can't uh, can't engage in a sport like that at, at age sixty. And plus, um, I think boxing is never safe for the head, but it's just not healthy for. 50 or 60 year old men be getting punched in the head because i think the brain uh, the damage to the brain is at a higher rate or greater rate than when you're young and uh you, the damage is is uh i don't know if it's exponentially greater but it's certainly uh geometrically greater than what happens when you're a, a young person yeah now what, yeah. what what do you think his intention is like how come you think he's coming back uh why I, I I can't guess what all of them and I I don't know what their finances are they they might be getting offered a lot of money to do this you know but but that's um it's, it's kind of like you're saying a lot of their lives are probably anticlimactic right now after you've lived at the level both those guys have to to just kind of get up and play with your grandkids or you know watch TV is is not quite as exciting and they might want to be trying to rekindle their youth a little bit. Yeah. Okay. And here, here's just really quickly. So the show is called losers on Netflix. And so it's like a series about different people who like pretty much grew through losing in some substantial way. Um, so this is the kind of caption about this guy. So the miscast champion forced into boxing by his abusive fighter, his name is Michael Bent. So Michael Bent became a world champ, but a knockout loss changes his life and helps him find his true passion. Michael Bent. I've heard of it. I will will look into that. Thanks very much. You're welcome. Yeah, it was like, it was a really, really, really good show. And what's so cool about just the show itself is that so, and it's obviously called Losers. Um, So the reason why it's called Losers is pretty much like, you know, kind of the concept behind it is that most of us would want to give up after some substantial loss. So for these people in some way, they found that kind of not only that they had new life after the loss, but in the loss, right, they found something significant or they created something significant from it. And so for Michael Bent, what he learned in that loss is that like, hey, I'm actually now accepting my sort of true calling, right? Which isn't this. Now that I even know, like now that I can actually fully accept that I'm never going to win my father over unless I obviously persist in being a champion and I can't do that. Now I realize that I could just let go of retaining his love or his affection and now I can actually move on. And in the documentary, he said that loss was, and that he said the knockout, the coma, everything that happened to him was the greatest moment of his life. Right. 
Right. Oh, man, that would be interesting. Okay, thank you very much. You're welcome. I'll man. look into that. Yeah, but yeah, back back to Tyson just for fun. Okay, sure, sure. Uh, so uh, it could be, a, you're right, yeah, right? It could be that they reach some point in their life, it's a little anticlimactic, maybe they want to, right, get get some of that glory back or just kind of get the, the love of the fans again and all that. Or yeah, maybe maybe it's a money thing. I don't think so. So if my, this is just my assessment, obviously, just because he said he said something that was really important. Um, he said some. Oh no, it wasn't him. So somebody, I think his friend, or maybe no, it wasn't his wife. So somebody said that like after Tyson quit boxing, and even like even in the period where he had the podcast, that he was like severely depressed. And for him, it kind of seems like not only his meaning and obviously purpose, but like his self esteem seems to be tied into fighting. Oh, okay. So uh, just a little backstory. I know a little bit about what happened with Tyson. So uh, just so pretty much what happened is that he actually got over that. Okay. Right. He did heal. Uh, he started other businesses. Right. I think he has some kind of marijuana business. Right. That he has a over. cannabis farm. Right. Well, that did some kind of uh, Netflix thing where he talked about his not Netflix HBO where he talked about his life. Yeah. Okay. But. Um, one, one thing that's interesting anyway, though, that you mentioned that since he stopped boxing, he actually hasn't, until recently, he hadn't done any kind of training. Right. And uh, he was on uh, Rogan. Joe Rogan's podcast and he, uh, Rogan's like, oh, you don't do any, you don't work out anymore. You don't, you don't box still or like train a little bit. And he said uh, something along the lines of, no, I, I can't because if I do, I'm going to awaken a certain part of myself, the ego, yeah. the, his yeah. ego, his, uh, the beast side of himself. Right. And, uh, and I, I could see that, right. Cause maybe that's a part of his life that he wanted to kind of forget about. He wanted to forget violence. He wanted to forget, uh, rage, right. He wanted to just make peace. Mm -hmm. But one thing that, uh, was funny about him coming back recently is I, I don't know the exact uh, tweet or, or where he put this on Instagram or whatever. I kind of just heard about it. Right. But he said something like, and this was kind of scary. He said, the gods of war are calling me back or something like that. <laughs> like the beast is back or something. <laughs> and I was just like, okay. <laughs> you know, yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's, uh, and he has gotten into great shape again, right. as far as that goes. Uh, but Glenn, I'm with you. Yeah, if, if you're 50 years old, I hope that whatever they do, it's not like serious serious punches to the head or to the body because uh, your body doesn't heal the way right. it used to when you're when you're younger right. so yeah. and, and and i don't want to be hypocritical if, if i i would probably watch it so even though i i don't want him to do it i probably would still watch it if if they do it yeah. but uh it's this it, it would be hard you know if you're a great baseball player if you could keep playing you would because who wants to give up what they do best in the world that you know you're one of the most singularly talented people in the world. No one wants to give that up. But that the reason baseball players don't get to play anymore is because they they slow down so much they can't hit the pitching. Yeah. And uh, the same thing happens to to boxers too. But in the world of boxing, there's always somebody willing to make some money off of you. And you know, or there's always somebody willing to promote boxing a little bit. Right. And you know what I wonder because like obviously he was trained by Customato and like I, I, I look I don't obviously I don't 
I don't know all of the gaps that I can't fill in, but I do remember obviously kind of from watching um, and reading about a story was that the only time he really felt loved was obviously like Michael Bent, right? When he was able to produce. And in his mind at that time, he's sort of like, I think even Rogan said it, like he was literally built to be a machine. So this yeah. sense of validation and affection or self-affection literally came from being the machine. And yeah. I wonder if even though... At, Pure hypothetical territory, but I wonder, like, as he kind of moved on with his life, if he wasn't able to sort of find that self-validation elsewhere. Maybe he tried, right? Maybe there was a part of him, because I know he said that he wasn't really ever happy when he wasn't high. Like, that was his thing. He's like, I'm, like, not a nice person to be around. So I wonder if he, like, really tried to find that validation elsewhere, but somewhere down the line he realized, like, this is it. It's either I fight and I'm worthy or I don't and I'm worthless. Mm -hmm. And this is pure speculation. Hey, man, that's that's, that's your guys. This is your... Your career you help people like yeah. that. So he might be an extreme case, but it seems to me, I mean, Tyson grew up in deplorable conditions and really didn't have much of a childhood. And I think he was in a, uh, you know, a ju- in the juvenile system since he was 11 or 12, you know, and, and, uh, and, and D'Amato, I think is the only person who probably ever really took care of him. But even then that was conditional because D'Amato didn't, he did that because he said, oh my God, this guy is a phenom. And I, the, so D'Amato's love for Tyson was conditional. And, you know, you're intelligent enough to pick up on that after a while. Maybe not when you're 13 or 14, but once you've grown up, you do. And, you know, sometimes scars like that, you know, you can't remove them. They're just, yeah. sometimes they're just there. Right. And I, I mean, and I, you deal with people like that all the time, I imagine. Yeah. 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 And that's sort of like the fundamental difference between people. Okay. Let me not simplify this too much, uh, but. I'm going to say it anyway. So it's not a hundred percent true, but it's mostly true. So it's like the fundamental difference between people who struggle with mental illness and who don't are literally the people who don't accept that they're unconditionally lovable. Whereas the people who do believe that their worth, yeah, their worth is based on something, some sort of external, right? So when we talk about that person, right? Like Michael Bent, right? Being inauthentic, the idea is he really believed that love was conditional. So the kind of internal struggle happens between should I really be who I want to be? Right. And should I kind of like, um, let's say manifest the qualities that I want to exhibit in the world. Like the ones that I feel like there's a, there's an inner pull toward, or on the other hand, right. Should I sort of accept that I have to be this other person to be loved. And so the inner struggle, and sometimes people kind of falter at it, right. They sort of, they, they kind of get sucked into it where they feel like the only way to resolve it is either by suicide or some other form of avoidance is essentially, I have to choose between, do I try to be myself, right. Who might, who there's a good chance might not be lovable, or do I try to become the person that everybody or another person wants me to be and attain love in the way it's actually sort of, possible for me conditionally and i think maybe that's what tyson still struggles with that for him the idea is that validation or self-validation can only come through boxing even if my wife my children love me maybe there's some part of him that doubts it or maybe there's some part of him that doesn't believe it maybe there's some part of him that goes back to the gustamato days and says no the only time i ever felt worthy was literally when this person told me i was yeah so uh, again i i i don't know uh, if that's the case but it sure sounds plausible doesn't it yeah right (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I gotta say though, um, one thing that I think is uh, useful um, from from Mike Tyson's background is uh, so I don't know the full details of this, but uh, when he was working with Demato, what Demato would do is um, he had him listening to these uh, audio, not like some kind of audio or audio tapes, something like that, uh, that would keep getting his mindset really sharp. Like uh, I think it's like. 
I think it was affirmations, but don't quote me on that. Like, I'm, I'm a winner. <laughs> you know, I'm strong. I'm a winner. Uh, I, I'm the best, all this kind of stuff. And he literally programmed himself for success. Right. Yeah, and yeah. I think that thing, that's actually pretty interesting. Uh, as far as, um, like say somebody is struggling with, uh, doing what is authentic to them, maybe like from a fear, from a place of fear or a place of, uh, they're afraid of what other people are going to think. Um, this isn't like a, f a full solution or anything like that. I think it's just like one little thing somebody could try is, yeah, like maybe uh, try things like affirmations or uh, listening to things that kind of put you in the right kind of mindset that help you to kind of take that action. But in, in the end, anyway, uh, it's, it's all about, you know, you making the choice to, to take that step. Like nobody's going to do it for you. Uh, no amount of listening to something is going to, you know, I mean, it's going to help you to take action, but ultimately they're not going to, yeah, they're not going to do it for you. I know I repeated myself there, but whatever. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I hear you. Uh, but yeah, so I mean, I guess Tyson psychology is an interesting one. And I think a lot of people in sports and obviously boxing in particular kind of have to fight through it. And so the idea is, I think, um, just, just taking aside um, conditional and unconditional love, I think what's also important is that a person has to believe that they're able to or capable of becoming something else outside of the sport, which um, yeah. fortunately or unfortunately for a lot of these guys, especially based on where they grew up, isn't really, or it doesn't feel like it's a possibility. Like I can also right. imagine that if Tyson really thought at some point, most of his life probably, that the only thing he was good for is fighting, then when you kind of, you know, the fight again, that he's like, oh shit, like where's my worth now? So it could be obviously the fact that he believed that love was associated with it or, you know, his own even or combination, right? That love, his love was associated with fighting. But then the other thing was that it's possible that maybe he really didn't think he could do anything else well. Maybe the podcasting to him just didn't feel like it was enough for whatever reason. But obviously, again, all speculation. Right, right. So, but that, that, the story you mentioned about the guy named Bent, that, that sounds like he found a way to to break through all that i mean so so maybe that's rare but that's a wonderful story then that he found that he's worthy of uh, uh of, of, of you know he realized he's worthy of being loved even though his father didn't provide any sense of that right that's a nice story man. yeah right it was just like and what was so beautiful about it is that he was able to kind of reframe it from this person doesn't love me because i'm unlovable to this person doesn't love me because he's a fucking asshole right it's <laughs> problem yeah Right. It's his loss and not mine. Yeah. Right, yeah. right. All right. So, Glenn, as always, man, it was so wonderful to have you on. I mean, like, this show was just super illuminating. Obviously, I can't wait to read your novel. I think that's going to be fantastic. Let's see if I could finish it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you'll get it done. We have plenty of time. So, and then before we go, Alan, do you have any final questions? Um, well, so I know you're working on the on the novel still. Do you, do you know maybe... Like how how far do you feel like you you are in it? Um, I'm not gonna ask you something like uh, when do you think you'll be done. That's a I, I know I know the whole writing process is a it's a it's whole big. thing. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. so so I, I I don't know. So I uh, like I said I I, I have a uh, I've written a draft, but it's just not useless. And so I've uh, uh, I've been thinking about it a lot, and I'm. Uh, just about ready to start in and make another dive on it. So I, I, don't, I don't know, maybe not. I, I'm, I'm pretty slow at this. It may be in a year or so I'll have some idea if, uh, if it's worked out or not. Okay. Cool. I'll, let, I'll let you know. Okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll let you know. 
I did. So Glenn, if we wanted to follow you on social media, where can we find you? Uh, so I'm on Twitter mainly. So that would be, uh, at Glenn sharp 33. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I think that's it. So I'm not on Instagram. You guys are talking about that. I don't know anything about that. Mm -hmm. And uh, so Twitter is, is probably the social media outlet for me. Oh, and by the way, I really enjoyed your recent article. Who is the poet? I forgot his name. Oh, Ted Couser. Yeah. yeah. So, oh, she's a, uh, th thank you. So he's a, uh, man, a nice, a nice poet. I like, I like him a lot. I don't read a lot of poetry, but, but his, his poetry, I like a lot. Yeah. And what was the title of the article and website where it can be found? It was on uh, published by by City Journal, mm -hmm. and um, so the, the the title of Kuzer's book that I wrote about was Winter Morning Walks. Mm -hmm. and, uh, yeah, uh, awesome. And I yeah, and I urge obviously all you guys to kind of go out and read it. I thought it was a really well written and well thought out article. Oh, thank you. Thanks very much. You're welcome, Glenn. Thank so you. again, thank you so much for coming out, man. And so obviously, much. till next time, and hopefully yeah. we can have you back on when the novel's finally published. That would be great. Thanks for having me. All right, take care. Take care, you guys. See ya. You too. Take care. Bye. Bye. All right. That was great. Mm -hmm. All right. So, guys, if you want to follow us, follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook and on Instagram and at Seize underscore podcast on Twitter. Mm -hmm. uh, like, subscribe, hit the, the bell. bell. <laughs> and also, uh, just one last thing I'd like to say. Um, are you stressed that you can't leave the house to keep up with routine, fighting with chronic conditions such as diabetes and hypertension, having trouble coming up with healthy ways to feed the family, or simply need that support system set up to make your goals a reality? Well, Vera with Verified Nutrition offers a 15-minute consultation on her website at verifiednutrition.com. Uh, read more about her individual journey and experiences, send her a message, check out her blog page and the services she offers, and make the choice to get, get verified. verified. <laughs> and then also, one last thing, you guys can find us at the O4L Online Network at O4LOnlineNetwork.com, and you can find us under the STM podcast section. All right, guys, thanks for watching. Look forward to the next episode.